Welcome to the podcast, Ingle Angle. I am Fort Worth Star-Telegram columnist, Mac Ingle. Thank you very much for joining me as always. I have a bit of a problem, a bit of a confession. It is Father's Day. I am a father. Do not have the DNA test. Probably should do that. Uh, very happy to be a dad. Uh, being a dad to my daughter Vivian is one of the, probably the, great, probably the greatest experience of my life. And I've been able to do a lot of fun stuff. But uh, being a dad has truly been one of the greatest things, truly the greatest thing that I've ever done. Well, um, this, is a, this is a hard week for me because it's Father's Day. And I don't know what to do for it. I don't think that makes me alone. I think there are a lot of dads out there who are like me in the sense that, well, what do you want to do for Father's Day? I don't know. What do you want for Father's Day? Uh, I don't know. And when I was having this discussion recently, it dawned on me, this is yet another step in the evolution of me becoming my father. Not just the nose, all of it. Because nobody was worse at accepting gifts or celebrating Father's Day than my dad. I love my dad dearly. He's a wonderful man. But accepting gifts and celebrating Father's Day wasn't necessarily his strength. So I want to share with you a, an anecdote that I hope to avoid. I was 10 or 12 years old, and I was trying to figure out what could I give the man who had everything. And he did. Whatever he wanted, he went out and got, and he really didn't want that much to begin with. So for Father's Day, I thought, I'm going to do it. I'm going to buy him something or get him something that makes him react in such a way that isn't, hey, that's great. That was my dad's reaction to virtually everything that you would give him. Hey, that's great. You could give him a suitcase full of $100 bills. Hey, that's great. You could give him a suitcase full of dog turds. Hey, that's great. He had no other reactions. And this time, I'm 10 or 12, I am going to get the reaction that is something more than, hey, that's great. I go to the hardware store. He was a handy guy. He liked doing things uh, in the, the basement. We had a, a workbench, and I find him something that he does not have, a big, large, you got to bolt it into the table, vice grip. Now, just saying that aloud, I'm not sure that was the best idea, but it was a good tool, and he didn't have it. So I thought, I'm going to give it to him. I'll give it to him. I saved up some money. I went to Sears. My mom drove me, and I buy a $40 big vice grip. I have me a winner. Give it, wrap it, give it to him. Ted opens it up. Hey, that's great. So my parents, my love dearly, are still with us, thank God. Uh, they are now elderly. 
Mom's 83, Dad's 89, 90, recently celebrated his 90th birthday, and uh, both doing really well. And they have reached that point where when you go visit them, they are still in the same house that I grew up in, which means they've been in that house for about 45 years-ish, give or take. They have thrown away nothing in those 45 years. They may have given some things away, Salvation Army, Goodwill, Nothing meets the garbage can. There are Native Americans who would look at my parents and say, well, <laughs> they did it right. They got all the mileage out of that toilet paper. Good for them. So my parents tell me, uh, if you see anything you might want to use at your house, just, you know, take it. Within reason, I'm not going to take the couch because I think that thing's probably been bolted into the floor. But obviously some things there that they no longer need. And I have done that. So I go down to my, uh, where my dad's workbench is. And I think, you know, maybe I'll grab some tools because he won't use them. I grab some fishing equipment. It's currently collecting dust in my house. And I look around and I think, well, okay, there's a screwdriver there. I don't think I have that one. And oh, there's, a, there's my mom and dad had two power sanders because one's not enough. They had two. And I said to my mom, I said, I think, can I have one of the power sanders? She said, yeah, but make sure you leave one. Because my mom at 83 years old still has the ambition to use a power sander. So as I'm sitting there and looking at this, you know, workbench full of stuff, I look back in the corner and there it is. There is the gift that I gave my dad for Father's Day 40 plus years ago that I was so proud of myself. There it is. There is the industrial sized vice grip. I'm like, I'll be damned. He still got it. It was still in the box. <laughs> he never used it once, ever. Still in the box. So I have a good laugh. And I think, you know what? I'll take this. If for anything else, as a memento. So I grab it. I go upstairs and he says, did you find anything? And I said, yeah, I found you this. I said, I found this. And he he looks at me and he says, uh, hey, that's great. That's a good one. <laughs> so happy Father's Day, Ted. Happy Father's Day to all you fathers. It's perfectly okay if you don't want anything, but if your kid gives you something and they're very proud of it, just make sure to take it out of the box. My guest uh, for this episode is uh, maybe one of the more quiet, significant contributors to the genre of documentary filmmaking right now. Uh, in 1994, he produced and directed one of the most significant documentaries ever made, the classic documentary, Hoop Dreams. Now, there are some parts to Hoop Dreams, and we talk about it here uh, in a little bit, that you don't know. And what's really amazing about that documentary, there's a lot of facets to it that are amazing, is that its exclusion from the Academy Awards changed the way that uh, the Academy Awards of Motion Pictures and Arts and Sciences changed the way they evaluate and conduct the nominating process. That's how significant this documentary uh, was, Hoop Dreams. And if you watched it today, even though it's almost 30 years old, it still holds up, which is incredible. If you can produce something that stands the test of time and you look back on it and say, well, that thing still holds up, that thing's really damn good, you've obviously created something very significant. And he did, Stephen James did. 
Um, he's produced any number and directed any number of other significant documentaries, but clearly Hoop Dreams is the one that put him on the map and sort of opened the doors for other opportunities for, for him to create later, which includes the most recent project that he completed, a, do a documentary about one of the most interesting men in the history of professional or college sports, former UCLA, Portland Trailblazers, and Boston Celtics Center, Bill Walton. Uh, Bill Walton's life is amazing because he's an amazing figure, very interesting. And Stephen James was able to capture Bill for the latest 30 for 30, ESPN 30 for 30 documentary titled The Luckiest Guy in the World. You can find it out. You can find it now. It's airing now. And it is just about as interesting or as good as you would hope it would be and expect it would be. Please welcome my guest for this episode, Mr. Stephen James. Steve, are you in Chicago? Yeah. Okay. So when I heard that ESPN was doing a 30 for 30 on Bill Walton, uh, I had two different thoughts. One, that may be one of the most elusive subjects to nail down for a life story, for whatever reason. He's a fascinating character. Uh, did you ever learn why he was so reluctant to do this kind of project? Uh, and why ultimately he decided that he eventually would agree to do it? Uh, it's a good question. You know, yeah, he he was, the ESPN told me that they had been trying for several years to do something uh, with him. And um, and that part of the hook this for this, for him to say yes this time, mm -hmm. was, um, you know, there was this film done way back, during the um, year that that the um, Blazers won the championship in 76, oh, yeah. 77, and then into 78, there was a film that was made, a, a kind of cinema verite film called Fast Break. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but mm -hmm. um, it's pretty obscure, but um, the NBA bought the film and bought all the outtakes. And, and so, there's a lot, it's a treasure trove of stuff there that was really cool. I, I mean, I wish there was more, <laughs> but but what's there is pretty amazing. So so they talked to him about, you know, doing a piece that that mostly focused on the 76-77 uh, Blazers championship team and utilizing this footage. And he he agreed to that. But then when they talked to me about it, I said, well, I want to read the memoir. Um, you know, I remember that team, but I, you know, I don't know if that's enough, um, frankly. And so I read his memoir and I came back to them and I said, you know, I definitely think that's an important anchor, but I, I want to do more than just tell that story. So I had to go out and meet with Bill. I had, I hung out with him over the course of a weekend. He had two of his best friends there to vet me. And, uh, and then he... <laughs> He decided to go forward. And I think, you know, I think some of the reluctance for Bill is clearly a sincere desire to not um, toot his own horn as a player. He's never, he's never done that. Um, he knows how good he was, you know, he knows how good he was. Every player of his stature knows how good they were. Um, but he, he's not somebody that, that, wanted to just talk about that and i get that totally get that but you know 
he loves to talk as we all know and he loves to tell stories you know and he loves to tell anecdotes from his life so i think you know i think once he knew that i wasn't expecting him to just talk about himself as a basketball player um you know then then he was more receptive to to this whole thing and i gathered you know, when you see the series, I gathered the remaining key teammates from that Portland series. They, I got them all to Portland. Some of them are still live there, but I got them all to Portland and got them all together. And they mm-hmm. just had this great round table where they just talked about that team that year. Um, and Bill really loved that. That's you know, great. that was a really, that was a really special experience, I think, for him. Steve, Bill's kind of renowned for, like you said, he loves to talk, and he's renowned for the ability to take one question and maybe talk for 55 minutes based on one question. So I would think one of your real challenges, yeah, not just with any with any documentary, but this one specifically, is editing him. Because potentially that 55-minute answer could be really interesting, all of it. So how on earth did you conquer editing Bill Walton interviews? Well, you'll you'll decide whether we succeeded or not. But um, (laughs) first of all, the the main editor on this uh, is a guy that has worked with me a lot over the years, David Simpson, and he's a terrific editor. Um, You know, I sat down with Bill probably a dozen times over two years and talked to him. I I, I knew that it w- wasn't going to be possible to, um, it wasn't going to be possible to, to sit him down a couple of times, which is typically what these kind of films do, um, because there would be too much for him to talk about reasonably in, a, in, in, in just, one of the ways in which we I focused him because I think the challenge with Bill is focus, right? Because he he goes off. Uh, <laughs> right. Is I organized the interviews by topic. So I said, you know, we're coming to town. Um, you know, we want to interview you a couple times. First interview, I want to talk to you about um your high school years, you know. So we stayed pretty much on topic and you know, yes, the early interviews tended to be more rambling, but as we went along, he tended to be more focused because the interviews were more focused. And that was a that was a real help in terms of our editing, too, because we knew that we, you know, he may talk about things across different interviews, similar topics, but but you know, we did a whole long, one of the best interviews we did was focused just on all the injuries that he sustained in his career. That was a two plus hour interview. And it's, and it's a very backbone interview in the series because it was such a defining part of his life. But I think it allowed him to dig more deeply into each phase of his life and not feel as compelled to just talk and tell stories. I think when people, I've only met him once, and the part that I remember about him, this is like 30 years ago, the part that I remember was a black tie event and he was wearing mm-hmm. basketball shoes because his ankles were in such bad shape. 
everything else I've ever learned about the man is through TV. And I think based like everybody else, we have this sort of uh, multicolored impression of Bill Walton that he's just some guy who doesn't wear jeans, but he wears cutoff shorts and a headband and he smokes a lot of marijuana and he reads a lot of these sort of philosophical books and it's more of an exaggeration than reality. How close is that perception that myself and others have of Bill Walton to the real Bill Walton that you met and interviewed? With anything like that, you know, there's a kind of image that he has developed and, and has fostered too, you know? I mean, he, he plays into it too. There's no question um, um, that, that there is a lot of truth to that, but it's not the whole truth, right? It's, um, you know, yes, he's a free spirit. Yes, he's a guy that reads enormously and is thinks about a lot of different stuff and and can't contain his enthusiasm for that when he's a broadcaster. If the game isn't interesting, then he's going to tell you about what he's been reading, um, whether you want to hear it or not. So all of that is true, um, you know, but but yeah there's more to him and i think i hopefully that comes through in the series there's there's a you know he he's seen a lot of, of painful and had a lot of painful experiences in his life and and he talks pretty candidly about that in the series and so i think you do see a you see a a a, a much more somber side of him at times and hopefully a more poignant side of him and that's the thing i wanted to dig past is the thing you talk about um you know you i show that because it is who he is and and it's part of his charm and part of his personality but yeah we're hopefully we dig beneath the surface and we see um you know other other parts of who he is both now and and has been in his life What's the one detail, Steve, that you learned about him? And you've been familiar with him since the mid-70s when he had the big beard as this big guy, larger-than-life figure, winning a championship for a kind of a startup league at the time, even though it had existed for a while. You had all these thoughts and impressions of him. What was the one thing that you learned about him that really caught you off guard that you weren't really, not necessarily expecting, but really weren't prepared for? Um, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, I don't go into a film knowing everything about someone. Um, so there's a lot that, that is revealed. Um, I think that, uh, um, you know, I think, I think Bill to this day is, is very um, still raw about the way in which he was perceived as someone who who wasn't really hurt. And you know, back when he was hurt a lot, there was a lot of media attention focused on is this guy really hurt are these phantom injuries 
you know, who is this guy, right? Um, and and he got a lot of criticism. He got criticism from the media, and and he had doubting teammates. And you know, I think if there's one thing this series makes abundantly clear is is that that was all unfair. Um, the man had you know he's had 34 surgeries in his life, um, but he's still raw about that. Um, and there's a moment in the film that I think is one of my favorite moments of the film. You'll see when you watch this that I include some of the back and forth between me and him because he's, you know, he he's a spar. He likes to spar too, right? He's not, he doesn't just, he doesn't always answer the question the way you want him to answer the question. He pushes back. And I, I show some of that in the film uh, from time to time where he pushes back on me for a question I ask. And there's this one moment when he was playing for the Clippers that I let play out where, you know, he had been hurt a lot. You learned that, you know, he was getting paid his big salary despite being hurt so much. And you and you know that his teammates are are not happy, right? So at one point I asked him this question. I said, you know, while you were hurt all that time with the Clippers, you were still getting paid. He goes, correct. And I said, well, you know, that that was a good deal, even though I know it's not what you wanted. And he just was like, it wasn't a good deal at all. And, you know, he actually gets mad at me <laughs> um, and feels like I I am accusing him of, faking it in some way stealing um, money so to speak stealing money yeah and, I, and and it's still you know so that the fact that that's still you know that was 40 years ago mm -hmm. for the clippers the fact that that still elicited such a strong response for him was interesting to me and one of the reasons why i left that moment in the in the series so this is more of a documentary related question than it is specific to Bill Walton. But to do a documentary and to do it right, do you find that in order for it to be, I guess, good, Steve, that the subject has to be willing to own their flaws and their mistakes and willing to talk about it? Or do you think, no, you can still do it even if that subject doesn't want to go in there and own their role in whatever challenge or mess that they may have been involved with. Yeah, well, it's it's always way more helpful if your subject is willing to um, to own it and go there. Uh, and with Bill, it it was kind of a it was it was interesting because in some ways he's very much willing to do that. He talks about having made a lot of mistakes in his life, and um, you know, so he's he's willing to own those mistakes. Um, but he's also, you know, he's also human and he, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't necessarily want to talk about all those things. So for example, um, one of the things that he does not talk about, um, with his friends and I interview his 
two of his best friends. One was Greg Lee, who he played with at UCLA, who died, you know, a few months ago. And we got Greg in the film, which was great. Um, another is a guy named Andy Hill, who who played at UCLA, actually sat on the bench at UCLA <laughs> um, when Bill was there. And they became close friends way back when and remain very close friends to the day. Both those guys said, when I when I asked them both about the whole Patty Hearst, mm -hmm. um, Simeonese Liberation, Jack Scott thing, which we dig into in some detail, definitely. Uh, they said they'd never spoken to him about it before. And I was like, really? And they were like, yeah. They, they said, I've, I've always sensed that it's just something he didn't want to talk about. And so I didn't talk about it. Wow. So I did ask him about it. And the way I got into it, you and you see that exchange. And he does talk. He does talk about it, but the way I got into it, and it's an interesting moment, I think, in the series, is I found this letter that he had written to the editor in Portland, a very long letter around the time all that was unfolding, where he defends Jack Scott, where he attacks the FBI, where he attacks um, the U.S. government, you know, where he, he just, it's a very, you know, very strongly worded letter about a lot of topics that he felt strongly about so i asked bill if he was willing to read that letter to me because he doesn't talk about that time now i mean if you you know if you look at anything he talks about in the last so many years he doesn't talk about patty hurst or jack scott or any of that he doesn't talk about that Do you embarrass that well, so I got at some of it, but it's a good question uh, as to why he does, you know, I think, I think he's not that guy anymore is yeah. part of it, but, but at one, but you see the moment where I ask him if he'll be willing to look of like, you know, like, uh, and, but then he does. And when, and as he reads it, he gets into it. Because he kind of, it's like he goes back to where, how strongly he felt then. And you sort of see that. And when he, so I, you know, one of the things Lori's wife said to me when she saw a cut of the film was she goes that I can't believe you got him to talk about that stuff because he never talks about it. And this is his wife of over 30 years. But dude, Steve, so. to, to do a story on Bill Walton and to do it right. And it's one of my frustrations with because well, I want to ask you about this here in a second about documentaries in general. It's like if you're gonna if you're gonna document a person's life or a person's story, then you have to go to the places that he is either famous or infamous for. And I think to do this right, don't you think you had to at least acknowledge his relationship with that particular rather infamous time in American history, Patty Hearst? Oh, absolutely. No, and you'll see you'll see that we 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 give it full. We 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 spend a, a considerable part of episode two detailing everything that happened there. And mm -hmm. I, you know, I talked to an activist from that time who was a friend of Bill's, um, who who was way more candid about it than Bill, but he was there and he was he was friends with Bill. So we we get at it. But yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of things I wish I 
you know, I wish we would have done more with in this series, of course. You know, that's the nature of the beast. As they're done, I think of all this stuff I should have done. Um, that's just the nature of the beast. But but no, I, it was vital that be a part of this docuseries because it was, I remember it as a kid when it was in the news and, and he was accused of harboring terrorists. Right. You know, Jack Scott was was accused, and he was guilty of this, of helping Patty Hearst escape the FBI. And it's true, he did it. And Jack Scott was living with Bill at the time that happened. That's crazy. So I felt it was vital. If you read Bill's memoir back from the of that time in his memoir. So I want to ask no you. Don't mention it all. And that, that's crazy to me that, so. that he would write a memoir and just like, oh, I forgot. Like, no, you got to touch that. I, I'm I'm very particular about that. But I, I wanted to talk to you about yeah. about documentary filmmaking and specifically, um, you know, you're associated, justifiably so, with one of the best documentaries ever made. And in my mind, the best sports documentary ever made in Hoop Dreams. It's crazy to me, it was a long time ago, and it it basically created a genre in sports journalism and entertainment for that matter. You know, the, you've, you're decades removed from that project. I think we're 30 years removed from it, 30, 29 years. When you look back, when you see how that film has stood up, what do you think that film, that project's legacy, greatest legacy is to, um, I think to filmmaking and sports journalism specifically. Well, I think <clears throat> I think Hoop Dreams helped make sports a viable subject for documentary. Um, you know, it 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 it's may it may seem like unbelievable now, but back then we had a very hard time raising any money to do this, to do Hoop Dreams, because what we heard from people, funders, consistently was, this is not what documentaries, documentaries are on social issues. And right. this is, this is about kids with a Than just a basketball film, right? And 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 we always wanted it to be more than a basketball film, but funders looked at it as a basketball film, and so did it, Steve. It did they see it as some sort of PBS style fifty-five minute thing that would be on at Thursday at eight o'clock, and the audience would be nothing? Well, it took us a long time to get PBS interested. Um, <laughs> It wasn't even that. Um, we didn't get anybody interested for a while. And, you know, at public television, when we were trying to get money from them, and I'd sent them a demo that we had cut to sort of give them a sense of what we were making. And I got on the phone with this executive. He, he took a call with me, and he was a pretty high up executive. And he said, um, Yeah, it's interesting. But, you know, it'd be more interesting if um, 
you know, one of the guys, you know, becomes a drug dealer. And honest to God, and he said, or, or, you know, if one of them got killed because of the violence in Chicago. And I was like, oh my God, that's, <laughs> but that gives you a, a that, that's an extreme example of like, well, that's worthy of a documentary, right? Following these unknown kids who dream of playing basketball. What, what's, what's the point of that? So that's where I, I do think that hoop dreams help pave the way for, for other documentaries at the very least uh, to, to look seriously at sports as a part of American culture, world culture. Now I've been told, I've read this, and I don't know if this is true or not, because I don't watch reality television, but I've read that Hoop Dreams also played a kind of role in the rise, which if it's true, I'm really sorry, and I apologize, uh, <laughs> for the rise of reality television because of this idea of just being in people's lives and following them around and seeing what happens to them. You know, I had an opportunity to interview Buzz Bissinger. I got to know him a little bit. Buzz is obviously uh -huh. famous for creating Friday Night Lights. And you have- was a very influential book for me. Pardon? That was a very influential book for me. I oh, I, I, you can see the similarities in terms of chronicling a sports story over a season. And, you know, Buzz is a, Buzz is a really interesting guy. Uh, but he talked about- yeah. And Buzz really got, you know, that that was, there were some consequences to what he wrote about the Odessa Permian football team in 1987-88. You've got threats, couldn't go back to Midland Odessa for a while. You know, clearly the just the title alone created something, it created an expression. All the United States that were using, yeah. Hoop Dreams did the same thing. People now use Hoop Dreams as part of sports right. lexicon. When did it occur to you, Steve, that you had created something that was way bigger, that had become this cultural phenomenon? Was it immediate or was it five, seven, eight years later? Like, I'll be damned. This is part of now sports sports lexicon now. Well, I think it was in phases. You know, for the longest time when we were making it and even finishing it, I, I just worried we were we were going to be on public television. We knew that at that point. And I worried that because it had mushroomed into this three hour monster, that they were just going to um, show it at 11 o'clock at night on a weekend or something just and that no one would ever see it. That that was the initial fear that all these years of work and it would just disappear no one would really see it because it didn't fit any programming model. Mm -hmm. um, and it certainly at that time didn't think it had any chance of being a theatrical film because it was a three hour documentary shot on video about these two unknown guys. So, so, you know, when all of that happened and it became a bit of a phenomenon when it came out, which it, I never expected this, but I didn't necessarily expect it to have, uh, you know, I mean, I was just kind of 
always amazed at what was going on with it. So I didn't really think about any kind of lasting legacy or anything. I think when President Clinton went to visit Arthur at Arkansas State yeah. uh, and then talked about him during halftime of the Final Four Championship, I thought, wow. Uh, the President of the United States went to visit and not he's not doing Arthur any favors there. He's doing it for himself. Yeah, right. He's wanting to meet him. <laughs> uh, and and talking about it at halftime of the national championship game uh in primetime, I you know, I I remember thinking, wow, what's next? The Pope? Um <laughs> but did the Pope give Hoop Dreams a shout out? No, not as far as I know. But um but I think the lasting part of it came even later as it just continued to hang around as it as you started to see hoop dreams show up as a a lowercase hoop dreams reference to not just basketball dreams but just sports dreams it became yeah. a sports dream thing even not just a basketball dream and then hoop started showing up in names of things here and there it, you know i hadn't seen that before um then it, you know, yeah. Then it, then, then it became to feel, came to feel like, wow, this, this thing is not going anywhere, is it? And, and you know, and of course, in over the years, I've just run into so many people who, who are really young, who have seen the film, who are aspiring basketball players, not always at all, but, and that their, you know, their mom and dad sat them down and said, you need to watch this, <laughs> and. And you know they they loved it and and so it has yeah it's far exceeded anything. I mean we're coming up on its thirtieth anniversary and it's still kind of out there and I still get asked about it and I never would have imagined that. I want to thank Stephen James for joining me on this latest episode of the Ingle Angle podcast and I want to reveal a bit of ugly truth to this. So if you'll notice in that interview it sort of abruptly ends. And this is what happened. Stephen had another interview set up for about that same time. And he said to me, uh, I can rejoin you later if you'd like to continue the interview. So we did, which was about a five to six minute clip. There's one small problem with that. I forgot to hit record. That happens. It was magic. Actually, the best stuff was the stuff that you already heard or watched. But I do want to thank Stephen James and you for joining me for this episode. We'll catch you next time. Thanks a lot.